Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer, horror, and beyond. I'm excited to have in the studio today a dear friend and multi-hyphenated talent, the multi-award winning J.T. Seaton. He's a filmmaker, a photographer, an editor, a writer. He does so many amazing things. Uh, his feature film, George, a Zombie Intervention, tore up the scene a few years ago. He has done a number of shorts, including the award-winning Peripheral, uh, In Darkest Slumber, God Rest His Soul, and some other forthcoming goodies that we're going to talk about today. J.T., Welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, I always ask our guests who are first-timers here, which everyone is at this point. What, to get naked? Yes, that's exactly what we're here for. Welcome to Dead for Filth, where the filth starts early. The first question I always ask is the same, and it's uh, something that you can interpret however you want. Why horror? Why are you drawn to this? What about this genre appeals to you? Uh, What about horror speaks to you? Why horror? Um... I've always been attracted to horror, uh, even as a child. You should have seen my room when I was a kid. Uh, I had masks on the uh, the headboard of my waterbed. Yes, <laughs> I had a waterbed, and it was delightful. Talk about a moment in time. I know. Do they even make those anymore? It was great. Anyway, <laughs> um, horror movie posters on my walls, uh, spider webs, uh, movie films. I mean, it's always been something I've been attracted to. Uh, My earliest horror film-watching memories, uh, I remember seeing Jaws when it got re-released in the theaters. Not the very first run, but the Mm -hmm. re-release. And ran down to the front of the screen and uh, and watched it. Jaws was also the first soundtrack I ever purchased at Kmart. Really? Yeah, it was crazy. Um, But I had visceral and very lasting impressions of both Halloween and Dawn of the Dead when I was a kid. Uh, Halloween, I remember after seeing it, swearing that I could hear Michael Myers breathing in his mask standing in the corner of my room. And uh, after seeing Dawn of the Dead, I could just picture uh, just a zombies tumbling into my room through my door. Uh, they had lasting impressions on me. And ever since then, it was just... And that didn't scare you away. You no. were drawn to it. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I used to have nightmares, what most people would consider nightmares, and I found them as entertainment. So when did you take that love of horror and start creating your own writing and, and trying to make films and things? Uh, ever since I was a kid. I mean, I confiscated my dad's Super 8 movie camera, and I made... Um, uh, horror films and films with the neighborhood kids. My greatest uh, horror film on Super 8, which I, I don't have anymore. I wish I still had that box of Super 8 uh, films. So they're all lost to time. They're all lost. Huh. They're all lost. <laughs> it's terrifying. Um, but no, I made a basically male version of uh, Midnight Offerings, the TV movie with... Uh, with Pamela Sue Martin and um, uh, I don't remember you don't remember Midnight Offerings I mean I remember but I don't remember offhand like I'm just gonna assume a day George was in it no but she should have been in it yeah she really should have yeah Uh, oh and uh, no it was Pamela Sue Anderson who was the uh, blind girl from uh, the uh, Little House on the Prairie Melissa Sue Martin who is that who was the who was 
Oh, I don't know. I mean, I didn't like Little House on the Prairie because it was too wholesome for me. Yeah. So it was just not a good show. Well, for, anyway, yeah, yeah. this was a 1987 made-for-TV movie about witches in high school. Of course. Of course. As you do. Now, so you made it with a male. You switched. Yeah, switched genders. Now, was that just solely by virtue of who was available? Or? Exactly. Okay. Because uh, obviously there is the trajectory then of some of your later work where you started to engage more queer themes in yes. horror. And uh, was there ever a point in where you started kind of like equating that identity with the work that you were doing early on? You, you saw that? Um, I, I don't know if I... If I if I did that in, at an early age. Because mm-hmm. um, I didn't really come to... Like full terms with you know who I was sexually uh, until later in life. So all of my early stuff, you know, stuff that I did as a teenager and things that I wrote as a teenager and then into my twenties, um, everything was separated. My personal life was separated right. from my art, and it wasn't until um, I was in my thirties when I was more comfortable in my skin with who I was that I was able to kind of like then begin to incorporate uh, personality my personal beliefs and who I was into what I was making. Right. And the reason I ask is because I've, I've talked to other filmmakers and creators who maybe recognized that aspect of their lives in the work even or in the things that they loved even before maybe they had a word for it or knew that it was there. So I like to know if like there was an early on kind of connection, but it seems like you purposely kept it separate. I don't think I did it on purpose. I Mm -hmm. just didn't, I just didn't think about it. Right. You know, I was attracted to certain stories and certain, you know, things in high school and college. Um, And the film's, that I tried to make during that time were just the stories that I wanted to tell uh, and not necessarily a conscious decision to separate things. It was just that was what I was doing at the time. Right. So you go to film school. Yes. And uh, then, interestingly enough, because you were keeping it separate, your first kind of like big Splash in in the world of the festival circuit as a film in two thousand a short that you did in two thousand four called Night Shadows. Uh, I know that you had made a short before that, yeah. but um, Night Shadows really kind of struck at a time where there weren't a lot of queer horror shorts being released. There were n- n- none, practically. I mean, in the research that I did with uh, you know a fledgling was IMDb even around then in two thousand four? I don't think so. Or it was the infancy of the yeah. internet, if so. Um, yeah. So there was no way to really kind of see what was out there, um, and at that time, there really wasn't any any gay horror, uh, and if there was, it was very hard to find. And uh, and or watered down. Right. So why the shift then when you had purposely kept it separate before that at that moment you were like, I'm going to make this now? Well, for two reasons. One was at that time I had finally, you know, had come out and, and dealt with, you know, myself and my sexuality and who I was and my identity and all that kind of stuff that we, you know, that we go through. And so I was very kind of like solid and grounded with the knowledge of myself and I wanted to continue in the world of horror 
and I had not seen a, a gay horror film. Oh, an overtly gay horror film. I had not seen... Let me take that back. There, at that time, there were... There's, there did seem to be gay horror, but it seemed to be just campy. Right. Uh, like, one of the ones that stood out at the time was La Caja Zombie, <laughs> which is a great title. It is, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, it basically was a, a drag zombie movie. Horrible. Horrible. I wouldn't recommend it, but watch it. It's very fun. <laughs> um but yeah, but it was stuff like that. So I wanted to make a serious horror film that was genuinely scary with openly gay characters. Right. And I've seen the film, and it's really well done, and it achieves what you're saying. It's a dramatic piece with genuine fear. And to have made that movie at a time when that really wasn't being done, were you met with challenges in the release? Because it kind of wasn't seen yet. Yes, absolutely. Um, a lot, it was weird. Uh, a lot of uh, gay and lesbian film festivals wouldn't take the film because it was too scary. Mm-hmm. And they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know where to put it. There was no other horror films that they could, you know, put in a block. Um, there was nothing that they just didn't know what to do with it. Uh, so they, there was a lot of rejection from the from the gay and lesbian film festivals, and then there was a lot of rejection from the horror film festivals because of the gay content, because of gay characters. But the film did eventually find a life, both yes. on festival circuit and it was acquired for DVD. In France. In France. Tell me about that. I think that's really interesting that it got picked up internationally uh, for distribution. Was what was that deal like? I, uh, I don't remember that much about it. All I remember was being contacted by this guy who had seen the movie someplace. I don't even know how, <laughs> and um, and wanted to include it on a DVD of gay horror short films, and. Uh, I was like, okay, fine, cool. You know, I was supposed to get money for it. I never did, um, <laughs> which is fine uh, at the time. Of course, I'd like to get paid now. Right. But um, at the time, I was fine. I just wanted it, you know, to be out there. And my only stipulation was is that uh, it would be subtitled in French and not dubbed. Right. Um, I didn't want, you know... Because something happens when you dub a film. Oh, you know, sometimes terrible things happen yeah. when you dub a film. But in a way, I kind of also want to see the dub version of that movie. I mean, I, I get why as a creator you wouldn't, but there would probably be something delicious about it now. Just Well, my favorite thing, you know, I'm leaping ahead. But one of my favorite things, even though it's a copyright infringement, uh, is my horror feature, uh, George, A Zombie Intervention, is on YouTube uh, and it is overdubbed in Russian. Oh. And my favorite part about the whole thing is it isn't like, you know, they got a bunch of actors, Russian actors together, and everyone took the parts and, and you know, it was redubbed in Russian. It's one Russian guy translating the entire movie himself. How is he? He's hilarious. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, and he's very serious. He's got that serious, deep Russian accent, you know, and it's, and it's a light comedy, this George's Intervention, George's Zombie Intervention. And so it's really strange and funny that you can barely hear the audio of the actual film underneath it. And then just this, you know, 
powerful, deep Russian accent narrating the entire movie. <laughs> and I just, I, I, I leave it up because I find it so entertaining. It's like, I don't even want to contact YouTube and say, hey, you need to take this down because... You've got to be amused yourself. I, I'm yep. totally amused by it. Well, so and it's got a lot of views. Well, there you go. There you go. Who knows? Maybe uh, George's Intervention is a sleeper hit in Russia. It could be. It yeah. could be. Uh, since you brought up the film, George's Intervention, the feature film, released on uh, DVD as George's Zombie Intervention. Tell me about that project and the genesis of, of your creation of it. Um... I had graduated from California Institute of the Arts with a master's in film, um, which in this world really means nothing. Um, I have a paper and an $80,000 debt. So there you go. What are you going to do? And I, for fun, on a lark, decided I wanted to take a film class at L.A. Valley College, um, just because. Right. And while I was in that class, there was another student there uh, named Brad Hodson, who I basically you know hit it off with we got along really well he um had a great knowledge of horror and a great love for horror films and we decided that we wanted to start a production company and so we kicked around some bunch of ideas and he had a bunch of scripts and i had some scripts and then after about a year and uh several drafts of a uh of a of a plan for the production company uh, we decided that, you know, nobody's probably going to give us any money if we don't actually have anything to show that we can do something. Right. And so that was the genesis of George's intervention was uh, take, you know, do something simple that all takes place in one house, even though in reality it was shot in five different locations to to make up the one house. Um, but it was to... To make something small and simple and to show that we could do it. And so we decided a horror comedy would probably be best. You know, we both had senses of humor. Uh, I had done improvisational comedy, both at Comedy Sports and Improv Olympic for, for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And uh, Brad is also a very funny and talented writer. So we just went with the horror comedy route and kind of made it on our own. There was... Uh, the two of us and then uh, David Nicholson and uh, Jerry Blackburn, also uh, producers that put in their own money. We all put in our own money and and made it for $60,000. One of my favorite stories, and of course I'm going to lean on you to correct the details of it, about the making of this film is you shot a lot of it in your apartment. Yes. And tell me the story about the bloody mattress. Uh, the bloody mattress. Yeah, the bloody mattress. Uh, I had to turn my living room into a bedroom because, um, well, first, the reason that we had to shoot in my, in my apartment was we had rented a house uh, to shoot in. Mm -hmm. And we had rented it for four weekends. On the second weekend, the actual owner of the house dropped by. And at that point, we discovered that the person we were renting the house from wasn't the owner of the house. It was just somebody who was renting the house from the owner and was on the side renting the house to filmmakers to shoot movies in there without the owner's knowledge. Oh, that's illegal. Yeah, it was. <laughs> so, 
So yeah, so we basically had to, instead of shooting all in one house, which was the plan, uh, find different locations because we couldn't go back once the owner of the house found out what was happening. Right. So that's why we were shooting in my living room as the bedroom. And uh, we had to shoot uh, two separate weekends with a weekend in the middle uh, because the actor who was uh, missing a leg and on the bed for the second half of the movie, pretty much uh, tied to the bed, um, was out of town for a, a period of time. So I had that bloody mattress in my living room for about three weeks. You know, caro syrup, um, maple syrup, and and red food coloring. Yeah, I sm- my house smelled like an IHOP. <laughs> is is what happened. Um, so once we finally finished the film, finished using the mattress, I was tired. It was nighttime. It was a Friday night. Uh, I just dragged the mattress downstairs. Uh, one of the downstairs neighbors helped me take it down to the dumpster at the back of the apartment building and I just left it there and went back up to my uh, my apartment at about 11 o'clock at night I get a knock on my door and there are eight police officers at my door because somebody had spotted the bloody mattress at the back of the apartment building thought there had been a murder (laughs) and called the police and eight police officers in four squad cars showed up, started milling around the back of the apartment. I mean, the mattress still smelled like an international house of pancakes. I mean, it really did smell like syrup because that's what it was. Right. But still they were like, you know, confounded and, and discussing amongst themselves whether or not they should call the SWAT team. And at that point, my back's... Uh, the neighbor at the back of the uh, apartment complex was overhearing this and he knew what was going on. He knew that I had shot it. He even knew that I had drugged the mattress out there. He went out and said, no, no, no. The guy at the front, you know, shot a movie. It's a prop. And so that's why everybody poured into my apartment at 11 o'clock at night on a Friday. And uh, the one female police officer wanted to assert her authority and demanded to see the camera that we shot the film with. And I was like, um, well, we rented the camera, <laughs> so I don't actually have it. And then she demanded to see the fake blood that we used for the makeup. And I was like, um, the makeup artist has that. The one that we hired to do the makeup, he has all of that stuff. So I had to show them footage of the film. I had to show them the scene with the actor and the bed. Um, my favorite part was one of the cops, uh, as he was watching the footage, said, you know, I don't like horror movies, but I'd watch this. <laughs> now, is that the most problematic thing that's ever happened to you while shooting? Um, actually, yeah, probably much, pretty much. Everything else, shooting-wise, has been pretty simple and straightforward with most of the films. I haven't really had like horrific, you know, things happen, floods or fires or right. you know, kidnappings. Well, one can hope. Well, no. <laughs> yeah, no, there's still plenty of time, right? It's true. So, was George the first time you worked with Lynn Lowry? It was. No, it wasn't. So tell me about your relationship with Lynn. Um, at the time I met Lynn, uh, I had a roommate, uh, a, an actor filmmaker, Jeff Dylan Graham. 
um, who wanted to make a feature film. Mm -hmm. He wanted to direct a feature film. He'd been in a lot of horror films as an actor and wanted to do something. And so he asked me to write a script and we were basing the script off of a TV movie with Anthony Perkins called uh, There's Something About Alan. Oh, yeah. Yes. And so basically it was a remake of There's Something About Alan. And so my original script was very... You know, followed similarities to the to the story, but then embellished and things, and uh, and I guess Jeff had known Lynn, or I'm not sure exactly how he got Lynn on board, but mm -hmm. he did hire Lynn uh, in that film, and so that's when I first met Lynn. And for listeners who maybe don't know, Lynn Lowry uh, has a long and storied history in the world of horror. She was in George Romero's original The Crazies. She was in David Cronenberg's Shivers. She was in. Paul Schrader's Cat People, where her bra mysteriously explodes. It's amazing. It is. It's amazing exploding bra. It defies the laws of physics. But you ended up using Lynn on a number of projects after that. Yes. Yes. After um, Psychosomatica was the film that, uh, that Jeff was making. Mm -hmm. And it began to really take a life of, its, uh, on it, of itself. Right. Is that the right term? Sure. It of took, its own. It, it, took, yep. it took a life of its own. Right. Uh, yeah. So there were rewrites and, and the film just became, became a different project, um, which is fine. I mean, that, that, that happens in the process. But because of that film, I met Peter Stickles because Peter Stickles was in that movie and Lynn Lowry. And so when we were writing George's Intervention the, the next year... I was writing specifically for Lynn, with Lynn in mind, but I didn't want to contact her until we actually had the script so that I could give it to her, you know, and say, hey, I wrote this part for you, you know, and which I did. And when she read it, she loved it because she's hilarious. And you ended up working with her, what, four or five more times? Um, oh, after George, only th three more times, I think. Three times. Three times? Divination. The peripheral. the peripheral. She narrates in darkest slumber. All the town's quiet. Oh yeah, all the uh, the whole town's sleeping. That's right. Yeah, so, so yeah, four times. She's kind of like your MVP. She is. Uh, earlier, when we were talking about night shadows, we discussed uh, how you had not really seen an actual queer horror film that was scary up into that point. And I know that you've incorporated LGBTQ elements into some of the other work that you've done uh, since. And one thing that I like to ask filmmakers, especially working within genre, is if you feel a responsibility to include those elements in your film because they are not often represented. Um, actually, I don't feel a responsibility to include them just to include them. Mm -hmm. uh, but if I have an opportunity to include them and they... It elevates the story, you know, and it fits within the project itself. I will absolutely uh, include uh, uh, characters, uh, gay and lesbian characters, and content into the project. Um, but I'm not doing it just to do it. Right. Um, and there has to be a reason for it and has to be, you know, justified. Just like, you know... You feel it's disingenuous to just include yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it might do a disservice to some extent because if you're just throwing, you know, a gay character in there just to have a gay character, there's a good chance then that gay character will become, you know, stereotypical, you know, and a negative reflection of, um, you know, the gay culture. Right. So it's, it's, 
if I do have gay characters in my projects, they're very, it's very specific and they're, you know, they're there for a reason. Right. Now, while we were talking about Len, I kind of ticked off a bunch of short films that you have made. Several of those went on to win multiple awards. You are no stranger to the film festival circuit, uh, both as a filmmaker, but also as a festival director. And I want to talk to you a little bit about this because what uh, people who know you as a filmmaker may not know is that you are also the individual who is behind the New Orleans Horror Film Festival, NOLA Horror Film Fest, that you run with a couple other people. So tell me about the genesis of that. Pro- that. Um, yes. So I co-founded and am the co-director of the NOLA Horror Film Fest in New Orleans. And that came about because of Divination, the short film that I did with Lynn. Mm-hmm. I had met a filmmaker uh, in Florida named... Um, uh, Ryan Blake George and uh, we hit it off and uh, visited another filmmaker that we met named George Clark uh, who lived in Ireland Belfast, Ireland <laughs> and uh, we visited his film festival uh, Blake and I and when we were there you know, we became friends and he lived in Mobile, Alabama and said, well you should come visit and I was like, okay I will so I planned a four-day trip to Mobile, Alabama. And once I planned the trip, he said, well, since you're coming, why don't we make a movie? As you do. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, "Uh, okay. And so I wrote a script uh, called Divination, specifically for Lynn, Mm -hmm. uh, as a medium who is fake and is is visited by a true conduit to the spirits. Uh, who enact revenge on her for all of her lies and deception over the years. And so we flew Lynn out to uh, Mobile, and we shot most of the movie in Mobile, and then went to New Orleans to shoot exteriors. And when we were in New Orleans in 2010, that's when we discovered that they did not have a horror film festival. And we thought, that's crazy, of all the cities in the United States. Allegedly that, the most haunted place in America. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and rice and vampires and ghosts and zombies and Haitian, you know, uh, voodoo and things like that. It's like, how can this city not have a horror film festival? True. Now, I've attended the film festival that you run, and uh, I have to say that it's such a great party. But we drink so much while we're there. I can see. Well, it's New Orleans. Yeah, you know, I can see why people see things at night. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about that because you are in New Orleans and you're like, it's preposterous. They don't have a film festival, but you don't live there. Yes, that is true. So what are the challenges of running a festival in a city you're not in? Well, Looking back, if we had our right mind, we probably wouldn't have done it. Um, Because, you know, I live in Los Angeles and Blake lives in Mobile. And neither one of us live in the city of New Orleans. Right. But uh, we were stupid and didn't know anything and thought, hey, this is easy. All we have to do is put, you know, our festival up on Without a Box and get a venue and we have a festival. And that's kind of what we did our first year and it worked out uh, surprisingly um, we had quite a few I had quite a few submissions a lot of submissions for our first year and a lot of visiting filmmakers come out came out the first year Lynn was our our main guest that very first year she came out 
and we screened uh, Divination and I Drink Your Blood. Oh, Lynn's first uh, uh, appearance, first film. So um, we did that, and we just kind of like kept it going. The second year was horrible. I mean, second year was terrible. Wow. I mean, just the submissions were low and the attendance was low. We were at the same place we were. And the problem was, is that we were holding the film festival on Halloween weekend on Bourbon Street in New Orleans, which was terrible, a terrible, stupid thing to do. But, you know, we didn't know because we didn't live there. Um, And so we've made lots of changes uh, in the in the previous years or, or the years after following, and uh, now the festival is the last weekend of September, kicking off the Halloween season, and uh, we are not in the French Quarter. And how many years now? This is the seventh year for the festival. And in year three, um, Charles Lucia, who is a New Orleans resident, actually I think he came by. He he showed up in year two, and. Uh, you know, came to see a couple of screenings and kind of talked to us and stuff. But year three kind of got a little bit more involved. And then by year four, Blake was opening a restaurant in Mobile and wanted to kind of focus on that. And right. so Chuck uh, basically stepped in as co-director of the festival. And he has been co-director uh, ever since and has done a fantastic job. It's like, honestly, I don't think the festival would be where it's at today if it wasn't for Chuck. Um, because, you know, him being... A, a New Orleans native right. and being in the city he was able to do things and have contacts that that Blake and I would never have and uh, because of him the festival has grown to to what it is and you usually spend a whole week there while you're there that's it, correct because New Orleans is a spooky place I have to ask when uh, you're there have you ever seen anything truly outrageous while you have been in the for the festival no, unfortunately, I haven't. I was going to make I was going to make a joke there too, but uh, but yeah, that didn't happen. Well, maybe the outrageous things you see are probably some of the submissions that come through. Oh yes, and I have to ask, as a filmmaker who submits to festivals yourself, yes. how has running a festival kind of changed your perspective of that process? Um, well, I'm definitely more respectful of festivals as a filmmaker mm-hmm. uh, when I get a rejection letter uh, I may be disappointed but I don't uh, write the festival an angry email and cuss them out you've told me you've gotten some really crazy responses from rejections yes my, my favorite rejection uh, you can't cuss on this can you well, you can talk fuck okay. there, there you go uh, yeah. my previous favorite rejection email uh, came from a filmmaker who was also an English teacher, high school English teacher in uh, Boise, Idaho. Sure. And his response to being rejected was, fuck you, you fucking fucks. That was that was my favorite at, at the time. This year, I'm my tra- favorite has, has become a photograph sent by the filmmaker of him flipping a bird. Uh, and then wishing uh, that our festival would fail and that we would flood again. In reference to Katrina. Katrina. Wow. Yes. That's that's some heavy mojo. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I actually just like fuck you, you fucking fucks, because I'm picturing where the comma placement goes. And I'm sure there wasn't any. No, there, were, there weren't. Yeah. But, and he's an English teacher, so there you go. That's, you know, I'm hopeful that if you're going to send that letter, there's proper punctuation. Well, th- there was an exclamation point. Okay, I mean, it was... Driving. And 
It may have been all in caps. I don't remember now. <laughs> One final thing with the the watching of the films. Um, yeah. You know, we do take seriously the submissions that right. uh, are submitted, and even if the film is bad, I try to. I I watch the whole thing. Right. You know, and uh, this year we had over 65 feature films submitted and I watched every single one of them and I watched about 80% of the short films that were that were submitted and of course we have judges that watch mm-hmm. uh, films as well and uh, it's very important to make sure that every film gets watched um, by one or two people at least absolutely uh, yep. because there are film festivals that I know don't watch your films that you'll submit to the festival and they've either curated half of the festival already with films that they're that they've handpicked or they got so many submissions and not enough watchers that they just don't watch your film you know and they'll take your they'll happily take your money but they won't watch your movie and i want to make sure that with the new orleans horror film festival the Noel horror film fest that you know people know that we watch your movies and since it's that time of year nola horror film fest is Oh, the festival uh, is the last weekend of September. Uh, it is September 21st through the 24th. And we get some great, great films this year lined up. Um, we're screening uh, Welcome to Willits, which is a film that got picked up by IFC Midnight for distribution. <laughs> and um, that one's a, a great film. Thomas Decker's in that film. Oh, I know Thomas. Yes, you do. Which is why I brought it up. And then we're screening... Uh, uh, a film called Replace that is uh, uh, co-starring Barbara Crampton and co-written by Richard Stanley, a uh, German filmmaker. Uh, the the writer-director is a filmmaker who had a film screen in 2013 from us, a short film. Okay. So, you know, it was nice to see a feature film from a filmmaker who had a short film. Well, we have listeners all over the country, so if you're in New Orleans at the end of September, please go. It's a great time. I had the best time when I went. Uh, I saw some really amazing films. I uh, drank some really amazing drinks. And we went on a... JT and I went on a ghost tour together. We did. That's right. Uh, they also gave us a lot of alcohol on the ghost tour. That's true. Yes. Well, you know. Um, so I really believed. I was very much swayed by the spirits on that particular journey. Um, both kinds. Both kinds. Uh so I know that when you are selecting films for the film festival, you have to sit and watch a lot of films. And you also have a great penchant outside of the world of film selection for the film festival for bad movies. And I know that you kind of curate your own bad movie nights for your group of friends. And I've attended a few. They're marvelously terrible uh, in all the best ways. And I'm wondering, one, what do you recommend for people who are looking for the rougher side of cinema to uh, screen at their own bad movie nights? I think what makes a great bad movie is a movie that was, for all intents and purposes, was meant to be a good movie. The filmmakers of the film really thought they were making something special. Right. You know, and the actors all gave it 110%. And, uh, and it just turned out as horrible as it could possibly be. Those are the most delicious uh, of the bad movies. If you purposely set out to make a bad movie, it's it's just going to be bad, and and it doesn't. It's not going to have that camp value that a glorious bad movie is going to have, you know. And there is there's like a whole 
there's like a website that is, uh, you know, so bad it's good. Right. You know, website that talks about, you know, these great bad movies. And, uh, and there's, you know, obviously Mystery Science Theater 3000 has tapped into that as well. Um, but I, yeah. I think they unfairly pick movies sometimes. I've seen movies on Mystery Science Theater 3000 that I legitimately like. And I always get like a little bummed out that they're kind of taking the piss out of it. Like I love Girl in Gold Boots, the Ted V. Michaels film, and they just love to rip that movie up. Hobgoblins as well, directed by Rick Sloan, I think is a masterpiece. A masterpiece. A masterpiece. All right. Uh, I think those are all good qualities to have a bad movie night for your friends. Uh, something I like to ask all our visiting filmmakers is what movies are have you seen recently that you recommend in earnest? Like what's something that you have seen recently that you really, truly enjoyed? Like, good, not a bad... We've moved on from bad movies? Yeah, unless there's, like, a bad movie that just, like, so fills you with joy that you feel people need to see it. But, yeah. Um, well, most of the stuff that, that I've seen recently that I really liked... Um, actually, there's some films that uh, have been submitted to the festival, both this year and last year, that uh, I really think are great. And have either gotten distribution or uh, in the process. Um, from 2015, uh, our best feature uh, film, The House on Pine Street, uh, got released through Terror Films. And um, that actual release happened because of the festival. A uh, representative from Terror Films came to the festival, saw the film, talked to the filmmakers there. At the time, the filmmakers had another another distribution deal in place, but that apparently fell through, and they were able to go with Terror Films for their distribution. And it's great. It's a great film. Uh, I highly recommend it. Last year, we had uh, a movie called The Fostering, uh, which another title is The Devil Lives Here uh, on art exploitation for distribution. And uh, I love that film a lot. It's, it's great. Uh, last year's uh, best feature, uh, Shortwave, should be coming out soon. I think it did land a distribution deal through Sony, I do believe. Oh, cool. And this uh, really shows, too, the power of the visibility of festivals yeah. as well. I think that's, that's really good information for indie filmmakers out there to have. But my favorite horror film in the last year, and you and I saw it uh, last year at Beyond Fest, oh. was The Void. Yes. Uh, made by two of the guys from Astron 6. Yes. That movie was really wonderful. Yeah. Um, and in fact, if you are a listener out there, you should definitely check. Well, you are a listener if you're listening to this. Uh, you should check out The Void. Uh, it's it's really, how would you describe it? It's like Lovecraftian. It's very Lovecraftian. It is, um, yeah, it's just out there. It's, it's, it's Lovecraft. It's, you know, the, the, the over-the-top, you know, gore of Reanimator, but with a serious uh, story context and a cosmic horror element that is pretty, pretty amazing. It looks great. Uh, the acting is solid. Uh, great character actors in there as well. Um, I highly recommend it. It was, uh, I was looking forward to it and I was not disappointed yeah it was a great screening yeah uh, so you've recommended other filmmakers films let's talk about what you're working on now what's next for you what is coming out what what was in the ether uh, well the first thing is a short film written by some guy named Michael Verade <laughs> I just I've heard the name but, I, uh, I'm sure he's a menace whoever that is yeah, yeah. a menace to society 
while drinking your juice in the hood. Yep. All right. Um, it's a it's a horror uh, comedy called He Drinks, <laughs> and I'm not going to give uh, anything away to the listeners, but. There's a fun little twist in it, and uh, it's it's a great little script. It's very funny. Thank and, you. Uh, and I'm looking forward to to working on that with him. <laughs> I, um, this was this question was not set up to promote promote this, but thank you. Yes, I'm looking forward to it as well. Uh, hopefully, we shoot that sometime this year. Yeah, but you know, it doesn't stop there, Michael Verade. <laughs> um, I have a feature film that I'm working on that Michael is, is co-writing with me um, called God Rest His Soul and it's it's the same title as the short film that we did and they're at, it's not necessarily a feature adaptation of the short film but there are definitely elements of the short film in the feature film. Right. Uh, but the feature film uh, is a film that we're trying to do you know, ourselves trying to do on a relatively low budget. It's designed specifically to take place in one house uh, to be more drama heavy and less effects driven um, with genuine uh, scares and uh, and really some solid horror elements in it and openly gay characters which we like here on Dead for Filth uh, and those are projects that are coming yes those are projects that are coming but you also recently released a short film I called did. All Things Fade tell me about that project well All Things Fade is uh, a non-horror film, but right. it is a gay content film. Uh, it's a film that I wrote. Uh, the script, I, the original script, I wrote like ten years ago, eleven years ago, and at the time it was called Turnabout, mm-hmm. um, and it was a, a clunky twelve-page script with extraneous characters in some badly written dialogue at the time. Right, and so when I was uh, able to revisit the script. Last year, uh, I was able to condense it down to, you know, five pages and really get the heart and soul of the story. And uh, I was very happy to be able to do that. Um, Jeffrey Todd and Kieran Biggs uh, are the two main characters in the film. And basically, uh, one of the characters reveals his uh, HIV status and it has a negative impact on their relationship, uh, even though they hadn't had sex yet. Um, and then months later, things take a turn for right. uh, the individual who rejected uh, the person with uh, HIV. And do you think that HIV narratives are still something in gay cinema that we're just not seeing enough of? I think, well, short answer, yes. Uh, the long answer is, yes, we're... We're tired to some extent of seeing, you know, AIDS dramas because we saw, you know, all those in the in the 80s and the 90s. Right. Um, but what I still think is important and, and what I think All Things Fade um, targets or basically brings up is that there is still a stigma mm-hmm. attached to HIV uh, in the world of PrEP, you know, where we are in this in this country or in the world with uh, the medications. Uh, you know, HIV is no longer uh, a death curse. You know, it basically can be controlled and moderated with, you know, medication. Um, you know, PrEP has come into the world, which, you know, has definitely helped to, I mean, not stop 100% the spread, but definitely bring down, you know, um, the spread of HIV, but there's still a stigma. I mean, there are still people today who won't date 
somebody with HIV. Right. And uh, recently I was talking to a friend who one of his friends said that he wouldn't even be friends with somebody with HIV. Preposterous. He wouldn't he wouldn't even communicate, talk or be friends with somebody who is HIV positive. And as far as the art side of things go, do you think because of the advancements in medicine, it's just sort of why it's fallen by the wayside in terms of narratives? Like people are just like, oh, it's it's fine now, so we're just not going to deal with it. But we need that art more than ever. It's true. Um, well, I'm going to bring up an interesting little kind of side that goes into that. Okay. Um, I work at a cabaret theater here in town called the Cavern Club Theater. And uh, we do a lot of crazy, uh, usually drag comedy music centric uh, uh, shows. Great venue. Yeah, it's really really fun. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, we did uh, the Golden Girls with a Z, and it was four drag queens doing the Golden Girls: Jackie Beat, Sherry Vine from New York, Drew Drogi, and Sam Pancake as the Golden Girls. All legends. All legends. Yeah. And uh, they did a very fun flashback episode. And one of the scenes uh, that they did in the flashback episode was uh, the episode where they went on vacation and go to a drugstore to buy condoms mm. and become embarrassed. Uh, and so it's a very fun scene. And when they come back from the flashback, there were some ad lib elements uh, to, you know, coming out of the flashback back into the scene. And one of the ad libs that Jackie, you know, had thrown out to the audience was, ha condoms, we don't need them anymore. You know, making a joke that, you know, we're in we're in such a state or a place where people think that, you know, prep is the answer. Right. You know, that they because they're on prep, they don't need to wear a condom because, you know, prep is going to save them. Right. You know, and so there is still, you know, ignorance out there, even in, you know, the world that we live in, in the world of prep. And things that, you know, and PrEP is just, you know, for HIV, it doesn't prevent other STDs. Right. You know, so that 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 joke that that Jackie said in the show, you know, still packs a wallet because it's true. You know, there's still a stigma. There's still, you know, education that needs to go on. And, you know, we've become complacent to some extent. Mm -hmm. And we... You know, think that, you know, oh, because of this new medication, we don't need this anymore. We don't have to worry about this anymore. You know, HIV is not a killer that it was before, right. at least in this country. I mean, obviously, in third world countries, it's, you know, decimating, you know, generations. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's the complacency. But we still need to talk about it. Absolutely. Well, from that very serious subject, uh, before we head out, we'll leave with a little levity um i happen to know that one of your all-time favorite horror films is the fog and uh just for fun because we're on the air tell me what it is about that little john carpenter jam that you like so much wow um that's a tough one because you know it's it's considered by you know carpenter fanatics and and fans as kind of a minor classic of his, obviously with, you know, Halloween and the thing being the ones that they kind of rally uh, right. behind a lot. But there's something about the fog. The fog has this little heart that just, I, I love about it. I love the characters. Mm -hmm. I love that the characters are adults. Yeah. I am very pleased when I see horror films where there are adult characters dealing with adult problems, you know, 
they're just horror just seems to be a teen and 20 something driven genre that that's all we're given we're given these characters that are teenagers and 20 somethings they don't have any life experience and so they're just stereotypes you know two dimensional you know able to be knocked off one at a time without any repercussions right. kind of kind of characters and the fog has you know adult three-dimensional characters and and great actors and it's beautifully shot by dean cundy it i think is for me probably dean cundy's best shot film i think um and the score is great everything about it's great it's just it's a movie that just makes me happy well before we go because when before we even started recording you looked at the microphone and said this is my stevie wayne moment would you like to take us out of the fog I can do that <laughs> Ahoy mateys This is KAB Antonio Bay, California And we're on the air I've lined up some tunes to help you celebrate The 100th birthday of Antonio Bay So Let's get down to business <laughs> JT Where can people find you? Um, they can find me On the Facebooks uh, they can find me on Instagram at uh, Catscare Films. And I also have a Twitter, Catscare Films, but I don't use that very often. I fail at social media. <laughs> I can't help it. I try. Um, but yeah, so that's that's where I'm at and that's what I'm doing. And uh, Great. And if you're in New Orleans at the end of this month, please go to the NOLA Horror Film Fest to see JT in person and watch all the fabulous films he's curated. Uh, if you are not able to travel there and you want to support this fabulous artist, you can purchase his film, George's Intervention, George's Zombie Intervention on many different online platforms. Uh, and I know that you have a lot of your short films available for viewing online, so track him down. He is the real deal, a true artist and friend. JT, thank you for coming today. Thank you for having me. And this has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti. As always, yours in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie Studios original production and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, as well as the Reverie app for the best in queer-rated entertainment.